So what is your and best depiction of Napoleon then? There are several. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> in fact, Le Figaro magazine newspaper, one of the biggest ones in France, did a listing of the hundred best Napoleons in film. And oh my gosh. I, I don't want to I don't want to brag, but I made number twenty-seven. All right. <laughs> in, in my role with Vincent Castle in the the Emperor of Paris. And uh, Joaquin Phoenix was 28. <laughs> Welcome to Talk With History. I'm your host, Scott, here with my wife and historian, Jen. Hello. Now, our regular listeners may remember some of our Watch With History series, where we talk about the historical facts and fiction of some of your favorite movies. We've only done a couple, but we were glad to bring it back today. So on today's Watch With History episode, we're diving into the world of cinema to dissect and discuss the much-anticipated 2023 film Napoleon, a cinematic journey into the life and times of the legendary French emperor. Join us as we unravel the threads of history woven into this blockbuster, exploring the triumphs the tribulations, and the undeniable charisma of one of history's most captivating figures. Three, two, one. Now, what makes this episode extra special is that we have a fantastic guest on board, a man who doesn't just study history, but lives and breathes it. The renowned Napoleon reenactor, Mark Schneider. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Mark brings a unique perspective to the table, having donned the iconic bicorn hat and stepped into the boots of Napoleon himself. Get ready for some incredible insights from someone who's literally walked in the emperor's shoes. So, Mark, thank you again for joining us. We're really excited to have you. Jen's been like talking about this for weeks now, <laughs> and we both finally got to see the movie. So, so can you kind of talk, tell us, a li- our audience, a little bit about who you are, kind of the different figures that you reenact for and and kind of how you came about to play in the the part of Napoleon for quite some time. Absolutely. And thank you again for having me. So the Napoleon character has been a lifelong passion. My mother used to say, and my mother was French and my dad's American. That's my French connection. My mother would often say that she never knew a time that I was not interested in Napoleon. I just seemed to have this fascination. One of my French cousins gave me a little toy soldier of Napoleon. He's actually right up here when I was like two or three years old and I was hooked ever since. When kids at school had Batman and (laughs) Superman on their desk, I had Napoleon on my desk. (laughs) So one day I came home from school and I was really upset because I've always been short and people made fun of my shortness and my big nose. And my mother said to me, you know, the only people who have who are short and have big noses are kings and emperors. (laughs) And so maybe that was the the catalyst to make me become Napoleon because I collected everything Napoleon, read everything I possibly could on him. I war-gamed, I ran around town as one of his soldiers, but it wouldn't be until I became an adult when I started to actively pursue reenacting and I was given the opportunity to become Napoleon. I actually was in the U.S. Army and two weeks after I got out. I came to Colonial Williamsburg to work at the largest living history museum in the world. 
And I joined this reenacting group, which was outside of Colonial Williamsburg, and we portrayed Napoleon's Seventh Hussars, which was a French cavalry regiment during the Napoleonic Wars. Well, one event we did, they needed somebody to portray Napoleon. And I had attended the Napoleonic Society of America conference, and I had acquired a costume that was worn by Albert Dieudonné in the 1927 silent film, Napoleon. Oh, cool. And it fit me perfectly. It was was incredible. In fact, it fit me so well that the the guy who was selling it gave me this ridiculous discount. He's like, you're meant to have this. Oh, that's cool. And I picked up the iconic bicorn and put the rest of the kit together, and I started portraying Napoleon. It became very, very popular. We did History Channel documentaries and we were given opportunities to to do a bit of traveling, did the Louisiana Purchase with Thomas Jefferson. But in 2005, I was given a, a phone call by a group in Belgium, and they were they were looking for a Napoleon. In fact, the guy called me, his name is Mark Van Meerbeek, and said, is this Monsieur Schneider? We would like you to play Napoleon on the battlefield at Waterloo. And I hung up on him <laughs> because I thought, he was, yeah, I thought it was like one of my friends, like kidding with me. But he called back, thank goodness, and I sent him a resume, and I started to go to Europe from that moment forward. So in 2005 is where it all really began. I I really have to give thanks to Colonial Williamsburg for teaching me the art of living history, of character interpretation, of nation building, as we call it, and because I don't think they had seen that in reenactment before, where you take on the actual role of one of these generals or characters from history and immerse yourself, not only with the public, but with the reenactors. So that that's how it all began. And so it's taken me to to Belgium, it's taken me to France, it's taken me to Russia, it's taken me to Germany, to Italy, Spain, Czech Republic. In fact, I'm leaving for the Czech Republic on Wednesday to recreate the Battle of Austerlitz. So that's my background on Napoleon. Of course, I omitted a little bit about my work in Colonial Williamsburg. I've been in the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation for 26 years, Uh and much of that time I have been portraying the Marquis de Lafayette, so another Mm -hmm. Frenchman who I do on a, a daily basis in a variety of different performances inside theaters, outdoor theaters, riding horses, immersing the public with the history of the American Revolution and Lafayette's part in it. That's, so that should bring everybody up to date on <laughs> what yeah, I'm all about. That, no, that's, that's perfect. I mean, really showing kind of from, and that's, I mean, you kind of hit all the high points that we ask a lot of our guests. You know, I, I can tell it's, it's it's very possible that you've spoken in front of a camera before. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I was saying. Like, you, you've practiced it so much and the thing is you you get better the more you do it i want to also say mark is also an equestrian he is a fantastic horseman so it it really adds to the role when you play napoleon and you're on the horse and um you also speak fluent french and so (laughs) yes and so i mean again those things make you so much more authentic to playing those characters i think It's one thing to know the who, what, when, where, why, you know, when you were born, what battles you fought in, who are you married to, what were some pivotal moments in your life. But it's something else to immerse you <clears throat> yourself into the 18th or 19th century with the things that they did, you know, whether it's, you know, the knowledge of the, the layout of the city of Paris in 1784 when Napoleon was attending the École Militaire Royale, or, you know, you can't say, well, I made a left at the Eiffel Tower and then I went by the George <laughs> Pompidou Center because those things weren't there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But adding to that is the the wearing of the uniform, riding horses. You know, horses have no patriotism. Mm -hmm. They will throw a prince just as soon as they'll throw a pauper. So you have to practice and practice and practice. It's the only way you're going to become proficient at riding or fencing, using the weapons, swords or a musket or firing a cannon. You know, Napoleon was considered to be the greatest artillerist mm -hmm. in history. If I don't know how to fire a cannon, then I'm not going to be a very convincing Napoleon. The same holds true with the, the horses on these reenactment battlefields, that the cannons are going off and the horse doesn't know it's, it's make-believe, that it's a, mm -hmm. a reenactment. Uh, it's frightening to them. So you have to use all your skills to, uh, you know, stay on, stay on the horse's back and look as uh, impressive as possible. When I see you portray those those um, characters, I feel like you just embody them. Little side note: one of my greatest experiences with you, Mark, was even before I even met you personally, and was my birthday a year ago. I went to Colonial Williamsburg by myself, and my birthday's in December. It's like the first week of December, and I was walking down the street by myself and you were walking down the street by yourself as, as Lafayette and like nobody was really there because it's like a weekday in December and I felt like this is my birthday present. I get to talk to Lafayette <laughs> and you and I talked for like 10 minutes and I was like nobody was around and I'm like this is the greatest I, I, gift. I, 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 re I remember she came home because I think it was like a Wednesday yeah. right? so I was working and she came, she came home I came home and she was riding so high <laughs> off of that. It was, you know, I was, it was so funny. Yes. It was so funny. That's, that's awesome. Well, happy birthday in advance. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But I feel like you really do, you embody those, those characters so well that I really do feel like I'm interacting with the Marquis de Lafayette. Even in today's time, we can, we can pick up the conversation anywhere. I think we spoke about your, your tour when you came back to America and toward America later in life, even though that's not the age you were portraying, you still, we still talked about that time in, in Lafayette's life. And it's just amazing how much you know and how quickly you're able to jump around and, and have that conversation. So I think I give you guys a lot of credit for what you do. You make Colonial Williamsburg for me that much more enjoyable and what a great experience being there. Well, I greatly appreciate that. That's kind of you to say. I think all of us and our team in Colonial Williamsburg, who are part of the Nation Builders, really, you know, to use an expression that we would use, we're all in. You can't do half measures. Yeah. You have to go all the way and not worry about feeling foolish yeah. or silly. But I think most of us would be reading books about the 18th and 19th century anyway, even if we didn't work for Colonial mm -hmm. Williamsburg. So there's a genuine passion there and love for history. I often and say, I didn't choose history. History chose me because there hasn't been a time where I have not been fascinated with history. You know, it's interesting. I, I can forget like what I had for breakfast, but you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, wow, today's the 27th. On this day, Napoleon's <laughs> troops were crossing the Berenzina River to get out of Russia during the horrible retreat of 1812. You know, that's what pops into my head. And, you know, I'm, I can be forgetful of so many other things, but when it comes to dates and history and great moments, in people's lives. I just don't seem to forget them. Is there a story that stands out to you, like a, a, a funny story or something that happened that, you're, that you were like, I'm never going to forget this or being at this moment right here and doing this and saying this? Was there, was there a particular moment for you that really resonates as playing either Napoleon or Lafayette? 
Sure. In fact, there's many, but I won't <laughs> trouble you with too many. What One really, really great moment in my life was that in 2006, I was contacted by uh, a gentleman who lives in Berlin, Berlin, Germany, and uh, he wanted to do a publicity stunt for his, his store, which is called Berlin Story. They sell books and paraphernalia that you can get that's reminiscent of Berlin. And so he flew me over and he, what he wanted me to do was get on a white horse as Napoleon and march through the Brandenburg Gate 200 years after Napoleon did it. Oh my and he gosh. arranged to have the key to the city given to me. Well, <laughs> this went viral and there were over 20,000 people there. Oh, so I can, I can show you some pictures, but it was surreal because here I get on this white horse and I've never been on him before. I don't know if he's going to go ballistic, <laughs> throw me, you know, killed in front of the Brandenburg Gate, but it just worked out perfectly. And the, the press was so massive and everybody was pushed up against this horse. I'm surprised he didn't kick or bite or, but it just worked. And, you know, we, we had 20,000 Berliners celebrating yeah. one of the worst moments <laughs> in their history when Napoleon occupied the city and they gave oh me the gosh. key to this. I had to give it back. Of sure, course. Sure, sure. <laughs> but it was such a surreal moment that is imprinted in my mind. What, what a great, great opportunity. I will never forget that one. But fortunately, with uh, this Napoleon character or even Lafayette character, I do get a, a lot of wonderful opportunities to... Uh, to have these these moments that hopefully, God willing, I won't uh, ever forget. Aww. Yeah, no that that's that's an amazing one, and and I I can only imagine some of the other opportunities that you've had that are just so unique to to what you do. Yes, um, well, and what, real quick before we dive into the movie, I just want to ask about the uniforms because they're fantastic, and uh, so I know for Colonial Williamsburg they take care of your uniform, especially the wig Lafayette wears. You have like the best wig makers in, a, in the nation who take care of your wig. For Napoleon, you have a couple different ones, right? And you keep one overseas, you keep one here in America. How does that work? So with the, yes, for Colonial Williamsburg, we have a fantastic team with our historic clothing department. Uh, the wig makers are magnificent. They do such a great job. Uh, in fact, I have like three or four different wigs that I use and I, we just keep rotating them. Uh, but they do a spectacular job, historically accurate and everything. And then the clothing is tailor-made to me. You know, yet another responsibility for portraying these characters. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to stay as fit as you possibly mm -hmm. can sure, to yeah. try to really look the part because, you know, nobody wants a chubby Lafayette. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe Napoleon in his yeah. later years, but yeah. I try to keep the, the 1805 physique mm -hmm. as best I can. But with the Napoleon one, yes, I keep a couple of them in Europe so I can, I don't have to transport them every time and the wear and tear that goes with it. And I have a great team over there that they'd house them and then they will bring them to the event. So for example, going to Austerlitz, I will bring a uniform from the United States, but my hat is waiting for me. My saddle is waiting for me. My bridle is waiting for me. And my naturally my sword is waiting yeah. for me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't bring that on board, yeah. but those were all tailor-made for me. And, you know, Napoleon had a, a variety of different uniforms mm -hmm. from the 1790s Italian campaign to the Egyptian campaign. And then the more iconic Chasseur à Cheval de la Garde Imperiale, the green 
one or the Grenadier à pied mm-hmm. that he wore usually just on Sundays. So I have all of those and the, of course, iconic redding goat, that gray coat mm-hmm. that he he quite often wore. So yeah, it, it takes time to acquire mm-hmm. all of those things, to get them tailor-made. And, you know, sometimes they need to be replaced, the britches or the waistcoat or your stock or your boots. You your know, boots, I have a pair yeah. of Italian yeah. boots that cost me a thousand euros, but they're worth every every penny because they they are they are napoleon's boots and oh, they're magnificent that's that's amazing that's amazing and i mean so we'll talk about the movie but the costuming in the movie to me is all is reminiscent of the costumes you wear because you're you look just <laughs> as good as what they had in the napoleon movie and i will i do think the costumes of napoleon should win an Oscar. I mean, they really were amazing. Yeah. But when you, when I see you in your full gala, you know, for Lafayette or for Napoleon, you look just as good. It really is impressive to see you in full uniform. Thank you. Yeah. Again, it's just, it's, I, I think before you even open your mouth on a stage, when you get up on stage, uh, you should already have told the public who you are and, and be as confident as you possibly can in those clothes. And the clothes need to look good. If they're ill-fitting, if they're baggy, if they're, uh, look like they were worn by your older, bigger brother, then, then you, you kind of, you've lost a little bit of an opportunity to, uh, to be that much better as that character. Well, and we, I know that you just, saw the premiere and now you were in Quebec for the premiere you portrayed Napoleon I was in in Montreal Montreal okay okay yes so in the 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 region of Quebec though okay so I did and then I saw it on opening night here in Williamsburg as well so I've seen it twice I was going to go last night again, and then I, <laughs> I told myself not to. So. <laughs> well, we we were we had to kind of trade off kid days yeah. and this, that, and the other. But I'm uh, going to give I'm going to give a quick summary for for our listeners just to kind of remind okay. them. So. The movie, directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon Bonaparte and Vanessa Kirby as Empress Josephine. Napoleon is a, a historical epic that explores the rise and fall of the iconic French emperor through the lens of his tumultuous relationship with his wife. Set against the backdrop of the French Revolution, the film chronicles Napoleon's meteoric ascent from a young Corsican artillery officer to Emperor of France, showcasing his military genius and political ambition. However, the film also delves into the complex and often volatile nature of Napoleon's relationship with Josephine, a marriage plagued by infidelity, jealousy, and the pressures of power. Napoleon's relentless pursuit of power and his insatiable desire for for glory lead him to conquer much of Europe, but his ambitions ultimately approve to be his undoing. As his empire expands, so does seemingly his ego, and he becomes increasingly isolated and somewhat paranoid, at least in the movie. His disastrous 1812 invasion of Russia marks a turning point, and he's eventually forced to abdicate and exiled to the remote island of Elba. Despite his downfall, Napoleon remains a figure of fascination and intrigue, and the film offers a nuanced and compelling portrait of a man who both shaped and was shaped by history. So I have to ask, what did you guys think? Jen told me a little bit about what she thought, but Mark, what were some of your first thoughts when you got to see it? (laughs) So I can't see the forest through the trees. Yeah. From the get-go, I was like, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> it, 
It, it, but I had to let it go because, yeah. you know, even films like The Patriot with, with Mel Gibson set during the American Revolution in the Southern Theater of Operations are entertaining, yeah. even if they are not historically accurate. Yeah. So early on in the film, I had to say, OK, he didn't witness the execution of Marie Antoinette. OK, in 1793, he didn't get the command for the artillery at Toulon in Paris by Paul Barat. Mm. There, it just the the list kept going on and on and on of these inaccuracies. Even the assaults on Toulon didn't occur that way. And there was a a, a a brief moment where I thought that they were going to get something very obscure correct when Napoleon goes over the top at the attack at Toulon early in the in the film, where he was stabbed in the thigh with a pike. Mm. And I see that him fighting hand-to-hand combat, and it never happens. So okay. <laughs> it just made me a little bit frustrated. So my, my thoughts after seeing it for the first time up in Montreal were a little bit disbelief that it's such a great story, the real story. Yeah. Why did you want to change it? I, I thought it, the underlying theme of this film is that it's a love story. Yep. It's a love story between Napoleon and Josephine. And I thought Vanessa Kirby did an outstanding job in phenomenal. the role of Josephine. Really, she showed the many, many layers of the Empress. I don't know if Joaquin was directed to portray his Napoleon like that, but he was a bit two-dimensional to me. I, I think, you know, Napoleon has... It, it, there's so much to Napoleon that I don't think you can play him just one way. So I, I didn't see that coming out of Joaquim, uh, either through direction with Ridley Scott or out of his own choices. Uh, there were certain things that I just thought were absurd, such as Napoleon leading cavalry charges yep. at Austerlitz and at Waterloo, which mm-hmm. never happened. It, it just I'm not quite sure why they put that in. I didn't I don't see how it it moved the narrative forward with something like that happening. But again, just letting it go. It's. It's fiction yeah. uh, based upon history. Mm-hmm. So why not? Maybe Joaquin wanted to lead a cavalry charge. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's actually one of the things that when Jen, she saw, I think, opening night. Yeah. And she came home and I was like, okay, yeah, give, give it to me. She said it's a <laughs> bunch of the same stuff that you did, right? And we, t- you know, historically they compress things or they put him in, in spots where he wasn't mm-hmm. actually, which is relatively typical of, of some history movies that we, we talk about. But one of the things that, sh- that she mentioned specifically that stuck out in my mind that, that you touched on was they didn't really portray how much his, his men loved him, like, like, like truly loved him as, as a leader. Right. And, and you would, you had talked about that. Yeah. Like, so same thing. I feel the same way you do, Mark. Like I love a good historic movie even if it's not accurate if it can really pull me in like gladiator like i can feel for the character i'm i'm all in and i really wanted them to show the love of napoleon because i'm sure you must feel this when you even portray napoleon is this his men loved him right and i wanted to see more of like his countrymen loving him napoleon did much more than just win wars right napoleon helped you know he, he brought the Rosetta Stone. He helped with the civil code of France. Like he was doing so much with the, with the, with the money system in France. Like he really wanted to build a country for his people and people loved him for that. And I, I couldn't quite see the love of his people. I couldn't quite see 
you know, even the love story with him and Josephine, it seemed, I wasn't quite sure, like, there was a codependency going on here. Like, it really was an interesting where I think trying to tell both stories, you didn't, you didn't tell both stories well. You know, you told both stories okay. I think if you would have tried to go with one or the other, maybe you could have told one really well, but trying to tell both of them, it didn't quite go as well. Although I do believe she's the best Josephine I've ever seen on screen. She, she's quite impressive. Yeah. She was, she was. But I, like you said, like even in the beginning with Marie Antoinette, I was like, okay, is this Marie Antoinette? Because she did not look like that when she's beheaded. Right, she's been in prison for yeah, a year. Cut, they cut her hair. They cut her she hair. Went the yeah, she's wearing like just a white shift. She looks horrible, and they, you didn't even have to have Napoleon there. Like they could have just showed that, and you could have understood what France is going through. And so I was like, okay, so I okay, so he must be going for some kind of you know reaction here with Napoleon there. But then and then getting into like he's running away from his people. He's afraid of his people. He's not quite sure how to lead the people. And I'm like, no, that that wasn't Napoleon. And so yeah. I felt like that was where Joaquin Phoenix was kind of losing the character. And they, I think they made him look more like a tyrant. Absolutely. And he was very enlightened. Like the man loved theater. He wanted, he, he loves, you know, to be well-versed. He loved literature. He wanted to educate. I mean, think about the Louvre today is where Napoleon lived. It's, it's, he brought in all the art. He brought, like, he wanted to have all of that culture in France. And it made him, I, I didn't see that from the character that he was playing. A hundred percent. You know, the timeline, I think for those who don't really know anything about Napoleon is going to be a bit of a challenge <laughs> to follow it because you start in 1793 in Toulon, yet there was no map that kind of directed you to where Toulon is. <laughs> if you don't know, it's on the map. I mean, you, you're Navy people, so you do. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's it's a southern <laughs> port in the Mediterranean. But why was it significant? They didn't really play that out. Him watching Marie Antoinette go to the guillotine, okay, you can put him there, but what purpose is it serving? I think the purpose it could have served is Napoleon saying, uh, beware the mob, beware the people and their reactions. They might go to excess. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a great learning moment or teaching moment or revealing moment for who Napoleon was. You know, then you jump to 1795 and he destroys with the, what they call the whiff of grape shot. And he fires upon the royalist mob. And then we jump, we, we skip the entire Italian campaign, mm -hmm. 1796 and 1797, which is the most pivotal time for him and Josephine. Yes. Yeah. You know, he gets married on March the 9th, 1796, and he goes right after to lead his army. And that's where you could have had that, that building moment to show him and his men. You know, it could have been nice to have a veteran that was with him in 1796. And then we follow him to 1805 at Austerlitz. Mm -hmm. Then we follow him to Russia in 1812, and then he maybe dies in 1815, that we see this relationship, why they love this guy. Yeah. Yeah. The pivotal scene when Napoleon returns from Elba and he meets the soldiers of the 5th Regiment. They even get it wrong. I think that some the the... The script writer didn't catch it, but he goes, soldiers of my fifth army. And then in the next scene, he goes, soldiers of my fifth regiment. 
I mean, do you not know oh, the difference between yeah. regiment and army? Mm-hmm. It, my head exploded in the theater. <laughs> yeah. And and that scene is so pivotal because, mm-hmm. you know, soldiers of the fifth and he opens up his red and goat. Do you recognize me? Mm-hmm. I am your emperor. If anyone wishes to kill his emperor, here I am. And it was just sloppy. It was poorly done. I, I It could have been done so I much know. better. Yeah. The, the, uh, as as Jen and I were, were, were chatting a couple of days ago, like, I think you pointed out they could have probably inserted a couple a couple key things that really would have tied it a little bit more together even for me right i went in mm-hmm. you know with not not knowing a lot of the history not i i just assumed like okay they're going to compress stuff you know i heard a little bit from jen but even for me when they came to that moment when he returned from from elba i was like they don't really explain why these people all of a sudden just we're like, yeah, sure, we're gonna follow you instead. <laughs> you know, right? They never really led up to that. They, they never, they never explained it. It's just like, yep, I'm just gonna say a couple words, and sure, you know, let's do it, Napoleon. <laughs> and and, uh, and so even for me, right, the the, the kind of the non history nerd, as we say often on this podcast, it, even for me, it kind of it missed a couple little things. I felt like they were really close. Now, my my one question to you. You before we started recording, you kind of mentioned the the letters between Napoleon mm-hmm. and Josephine. Do you think that they got their their relationship kind of relatively close? Was it that kind of volatile? Because it, it it seemed pretty volatile in the in the movie. I didn't like with the divorce scene in which is supposed to take place in eighteen o nine, but I think they had it in eighteen o seven when he slapped yeah. her. Mm. Yeah, that was a no go. I. Uh, I think when Napoleon met Josephine in 1795 and then married her in 1796, he was the one who was head over heels for her. She was not so into him. I think it was a marriage of convenience and she you know, just survived the, the terror of the revolution. But when he goes on that Italian campaign, these letters that he writes, sometimes three or four per day, sometimes two or three sentences are so passionate. They are so loving. It just he he absolutely adores her. And when he they did get it right when Napoleon was in Egypt and his friend Junot tells him of Josephine's infidelity with Hippolyte Charles okay. and and that crushed him. But all throughout the movie, they made it seem like, oh, well, Napoleon is leaving Egypt because he's upset at Josephine with her lover, Hippolyte Charles, and he has to go back to France. Or when he's on Elba, He's worried about Josephine's health, so he has to escape from Elba. Those are not the reasons Mm -hmm. that he did those things. But I I think what they were trying to do was in the in the scenes of Napoleon and Josephine together the the love making scenes and stuff like that i think they were trying to show that passion but it it really did not come across as the passion from the letters it made him look like a a little bit of a monster yeah. with her and i i don't think that's again it's historical fiction based on mm-hmm. fact but i don't think he got that right yeah, no, I 100% agree. It made him look like a brute with her, and he yeah. wasn't that way with her. And she was already, she had already passed by the time he goes to Elba. And so that was interesting that they had done that. I was like, oh, that's yeah, interesting timeline there. And like you said, he never would have, he didn't hit her during the divorce. He never would have done that. And honestly, the infidelities, 
I try to stress with people, it's it's French. And I'm not trying to say that the French people for infidelity is the norm, but infidelity is very accepted, especially with royalty. And so much so when you think of Dubarry, who has such a status place, the the mistress to Louis the Fourteenth, like it's a very it's it's a status place to be a a mistress, and that's even what Josephine was when he first meets her. She was a, a mistress to a, a political, high standing political. Oh, yeah. And so, the infidelity, even though he's heartbroken about her infidelity, he's also being, you know, he's not being faithful either. I think the biggest thing for them was they were never ever to have a child, and together. And so, and I, I. I don't know what it was. People not sure exactly why, why I I give a lot of different reasons, especially with Napoleon being gone a lot. And she's, you know, she's in her 30s when they marry, but, and then he's gone <laughs> for long periods of time because they can never conceive a child. And then he does have some children out of wedlock, so he can have children. It's that whole idea. And that is another royal idea that you have to have an, a legitimate heir. And right. because he's emperor, he needs to secure this lineage. this lineage with a legitimate heir. And so that's the heartbreak that he they are a power couple together. Even, you know, she has come to really believe and trust in him. He has come to believe and trust in her. He, she's given him political access, help him climb. She he's given her protection, helped her climb. She became empress of, of France. And they really do appreciate who they are to each other, plus the love, which I love, Mark. We're all military. I tell people when you're deployed or when you're away from somebody, boy, that love will come flowing out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You appreciate someone so much more when you're not together. <laughs> That's, right. That's, right. That's why I think Isn't those love the letters, truth? they're like, they're the first love letters. Like uh, everyone in deployment who's writing their love letters home via email. Look at Napoleon's writing. Josephine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, you know, I'm, I'm with you on that. That's, uh, that's so true. The, you know, I think, it hurt Napoleon so badly when he heard about the Hippolyte Charles. And I don't think he was ever the same with her. Mm. But I do think once Josephine put aside that lover, she didn't have any more, whereas Napoleon did mm -hmm. in that 1802 time period when he becomes consul for life and then emperor. You know, they have that window of, of I think, happiness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's he, he's just become emperor. He's made her empress. You know, he fights the Battle of Austerlitz, his greatest victory. Mm -hmm. He then defeats the Prussians at Jena and Auerstadt and takes Berlin. But it was the Polish campaign where he met that, and they didn't even bring her up, no. Maria Waleska, mm -hmm. and he had a child with her as well. And by that time, I think Napoleon realized that Josephine was incapable of having any more children. And for the purpose of, yeah, the, the lineage, he was going to have to marry somebody who could have a child. But, you know, everything went downhill after that. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to note because they used to call Josephine Our Lady of Victories. <laughs> the soldiers used to call her that. And, you know, he did have his meteoric rise from 1795 till he divorces her in 1809. And after 1809, things just start mm -hmm. to fall apart. And it's, I've often wondered about that, you know, the, 
the the luck that Josephine brought with Napoleon, because you know, eighteen oh nine campaign did not go terribly well. Mm-hmm. Spain eighteen ten eleven was not going well. Eighteen twelve goes without saying. Eighteen thirteen fourteen fifteen things just really went downhill. So it's, it's, I think it's also telling, you know, Napoleon's last words for the l'armée, tête l'armée, Josephine. Yeah. Last word he said, Josephine. I think that really speaks volumes. I love, yeah, I love hearing you say that stuff in French. <laughs> okay. So, and, and I agree with you that, that's touch one more thing. What they, we could, they could have done better. Let's then let's go to what they did. Right. They should have had a map, Mark. They should have had a map to show Napoleon's empire and then, like, yeah. they should have, because I think that's impressive, too. Yeah, we we should have been able to the, see, the scale. right, like, what he's doing across Europe. And so How many people know where Austerlitz is? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, they do people know it's in the Czech Republic? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and there was no Czech Republic in the time period of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. It's all part of Moravia or Bohemia, yeah, part of the Austrian Empire. So uh, I, I think, yeah, just for context, you know, mm-hmm. crawl, walk, run. Let's make it simple for everybody yep. who's watching this from the Napoleonic scholar to the guy who's never heard of Napoleon before. Yeah, absolutely. So what did they get right? What, what was what something you're like, this is awesome. Like, you know, I talked a little bit about the costumes, but... I mean, those fight scenes, Mark, like, and I wanted to ask you about the horse when he gets the cannonball out of the horse. <laughs> but did that really happen? I was like, I have to ask Mark no. about this. Yeah. No, I mean, he had, <laughs> he, he had several horses killed from under him, but I, I'd never seen that before. That was, that was all Hollywood at its okay. best. And then him reaching his hand to pull out, it looked like it was a, a three pounder or maybe mm-hmm. a, I think, yeah, it was a three pounder that he pulls out of the horse. That was that was interesting. An interesting choice. <laughs> so the battle scenes were not accurate. Okay. Okay. Yes. They were not. No. So Austerlitz was fascinating because I've been to that battlefield more than any other battlefield in, in my life. And, uh, you know, I've gone over the terrain and that's okay if you don't want to get the terrain. But the, the key problem with the battle scenes is that they kept putting up these French tents. Now, Napoleon had a, a campaign tent that he would stay in periodically as they were on the march. And some of the so yeah, there was a whole layout of tents and stuff like that. But the tents would never be found like right on the battle lines. And that seems to be what Ridley Scott did with both Austerlitz, Borodino in Russia and with Waterloo. Oh yeah. And also uh-huh. the men like creating these entrenchments Yes, in some Napoleonic battles, they did put up entrenchments, the use of the gabions and uh, defense works and earthworks and things like that, but not for Austerlitz. Uh, Austerlitz was a, a, it's a massive battlefield and it was a battle of maneuver mm. and then a battle of annihilation at the end. And I just don't think they, that, you know, the whole idea with the lakes and him firing upon the lakes. Yes, those lakes are in the southern portion of the battlefield. They have since been drained and an archaeological dig was done in which they unearthed like three bodies. Mm. Yeah. Three. Yeah. One, two, three. Yeah. And I think uh, the skeletal remains of a horse. So were those ponds destroyed by cannon? Probably during the battle. But did they inflict the carnage that the movie showed? No, no, they did not. I yeah. see. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, the, the one thing I will say, right, kind of being, you know, even for our YouTube channel for, for Watch with, Walk With History, you know, kind of being the guy behind the scenes and, you know, trying my hand at, at, at you know, hobbyist 
cinematography, mm-hmm. right? What, what I can teach myself. I did appreciate that. I mean, just the, the kind of the grand scale. That's why I really made the effort to go see it in the theater. This is absolutely like a go, a go see it in the theater type sure. of movie. I love, I do love those, the, the grandiose feel of those battle scenes, whether or not they're accurate. I had no idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, but I did appreciate them just purely from kind of like a, a Hollywood perspective sure. of getting the, the scale and, and, and really honestly, like some of the carnage, you know, and, and one of the things that I was actually curious about was some of the battle tactics at the end when they were doing the horse charge. And then I think it was the, was it the British that all of a sudden they, they kind of closed ranks around and the horses were running they around squares. Yeah. Was, is that, yes. is that an actual tactic? That's an actual tactic, and that was what was done at the battlefield of Waterloo. But it's interesting to note (laughs) that in the film, the British come out out of their entrenchments to form square, where the reality, if they had those entrenchments, they would probably be far safer in the entrenchments fending off cavalry than coming out dramatically and forming squares. So the, the British did form square at Waterloo and the French cavalry charged like 11 times and they didn't break the squares. Wow. So it was a, it was a pivotal moment in the battle. And the reason the cavalry charged was because Wellington, the Duke of Wellington who commanded the, the British forces, he actually told his entire battle line to do an about face and to fall back a hundred paces. The French, Napoleon was ill during the Battle of Waterloo and he left it to one of his subordinates, Marshal Ney. And when Ney saw them falling back, he felt they were in full retreat. So he Mm -hmm. immediately ordered the cavalry charge to pursue, which is the proper thing to do when you see an enemy retreating. You pursue them without letting them regroup or reform. That's one of the great roles of cavalry. And But it turns out that they were just retiring because they were getting such a pounding from the French artillery. And then they were able to successfully form squares and fend off the French cavalry. Yeah. And, and to me, that's, that's just something that kind of stuck out to me, you know, because it was just something I, I hadn't seen before. Sure. And I, I wondered if that, that was one of the accurate things. So that's, that's actually kind of pretty neat to know. Well, I had read that Ripley, Ripley Scott, the reason why he fires the cannons onto the pyramids that never happened is he just no. wanted to portray that Napoleon took Egypt. And I'm like, okay, you probably could have portrayed that with him show, finding the Rosetta Stone. Here you go. Yeah, I sure. took Egypt. I found the yeah. Rosetta Stone. So without doing the cannons, but again, cinematography. And I read with the men dying in the water and so dramatically, he wanted to show how Napoleon had no regard for life. Hmm. And oh. even the right. And so, and even at the end of the movie, when they talk about all the lives lost and all the battles, that was really what Ripley Scott wanted to hit you with was how much Napoleon had no regard for his soldiers' lives. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> Yeah, he didn't explain that terribly well. And I think those statistics were taken out of context, too. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the whole idea of him firing upon the pyramids, uh, I mean, whatever, it's a dramatic effect. It seemed like he was bored with yeah. Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal of Napoleon in that particular scene as the the Mamelukes and the Ottomans were like doing their rallying mm-hmm. to to about to fight the French, and then he fires the at the top of the pyramids, and they collapse on the the Mamelukes and and kill some of them. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, they they forget to tell you that he brought 150 people to study Egypt. Mm -hmm. It is the foundation for Egyptology. You've already brought up the Rosetta Stone, oh, yep. which will be deciphered by a Frenchman, Champollion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many discoveries were made on that Egyptian campaign. And he didn't have to bring these 150 savants to do the study, but he did because he was an enlightened man who wanted to discover more about this forgotten civilization. And thanks to that, we now know the history history of the of ancient Egypt and yeah. all that occurred. We've deciphered the, the the hieroglyphs. And you know, a lot of these great pieces from antiquity in Egypt are for us to to learn about. I did like the scene where they uncover the sarcophagus and Napoleon puts the hat. There is a, a lithograph of Napoleon doing that. Oh, and really? he's staring with his arms like this and he's staring. I think maybe you know, without the caption there, it doesn't say anything, but I think maybe he's reflecting upon history that I too will be like this, this mummy here, thousands of years. Will I be remembered? Will I be forgotten? Mm -hmm. What impact will I have? So I, I really enjoyed that scene uh, a tremendous amount. Uh, I did also like to see the, the gentleman of color who mm -hmm. was uh, one of his generals, because that's true. Yeah. You had Mathieu Dumas, one of his cavalry commanders, who was there. So I'm glad they, they showed him. So, uh, you know, that transition in uniforms from the the, the French revolutionary uniform, which was the blue with the uh, gold embroidery up, upon the, the red collar and cuffs, that was nicely done. They showed that transition through time. They also showed the transition with his hair. Uh, you know, he did keep long hair until he comes back for the coup. Mm -hmm. And then he cuts it and they call him le petit tendu, the, the little shaven one. <laughs> 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 so, but he he cuts it in that Roman style, which is uh, so very popular, alatitis as they called it in that time period. So, yeah, th those things looked good. The one scene with Josephine's son Eugène de Beauharnais wanting to get his father's saber back. Mm -hmm. There's two versions to that. One is he's bringing his father's saber to give to to Napoleon. The other, obviously, in this movie, he's taking it back, but. The, the challenge of all those sabers in that room, the one they pick is actually an 1813 model, and it was supposed to be 1794. Oh, that's funny. So, I mean, I, I think I know that, and maybe 10 other guys know that, but <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, of the one you pick, I actually have a reproduction of it. I was like, wow. That's, that's hilarious. Well, it's just like whenever Jen watches Navy movies and there's a helicopter in there, she's, she'll always say like, a helicopter wouldn't do that or they wouldn't do that it's like jen is a movie like give it up <laughs> i know it's hard but, but then like you, like you just enjoy it for the for the cinematic version of it yeah so okay mark overall out of four stars is it like a three star is it a two star what, what are you thinking so if we're going to use your four star uh rating system I, I'm going to give it one star. Oh, my gosh. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay, so what is your and, best depiction of Napoleon, then, if you could say oh, someone oh, could watch sure. a movie? So th there are several. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> in fact, Le Figaro magazine newspaper, one of the biggest ones in France, did a listing of the hundred best Napoleons in film. And oh my gosh. I, I don't want to, I don't want to brag, but I made number 27. All right. <laughs> in, in my role with Vincent Castle in the, the emperor of Paris. And 
Uh, Joaquin Phoenix was 28. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's awesome. There you go. A little feather in <laughs> your you cap go. there. <laughs> exactly. So, so of of the Napoleon films, uh, my favorite film of all time is the 1927 silent film called Napoleon. And that was directed by Abel Gans, and it was starring a man named Albert Dieudonné. And he really just nails that early Napoleon, that uh, 17 from Toulon to the, the Royalist Uprising in 95 to the Italian campaign. That's really where it ends. But wow, he looks the part very well. Is, is that also- an, I'm sorry, is that American made? Well, Francis Ford Coppola remastered it because, again, okay. a 1927 silent film. He remastered it in, I think, 1981 or 1983. Okay. Okay. It's being worked on again, and I think they're going to do another theatrical release, which would be wonderful. But when that's going to come, I don't know. But that that's I have it on VHS. <laughs> that Nobody's put it on DVD, which is just very bizarre. But there's also another film directed by Abel Gans, and it's called Austerlitz. Mm. And it's all about that battle. And it stars Pierre Mondi, who does a stellar performance as Napoleon. Another Napoleon that I like is the 1956 War and Peace with Audrey Hepburn and Henry Fonda. Yep. And that Napoleon is a Czech actor named Herbert Lohm who I think nails it. There's, of course, crowd favorites like Rod Steiger in the 1970 movie called Waterloo, Mm -hmm. which is all about that battle. That's Scott, if you want to see what the squares actually look like and how the battle actually unfolded, and I do have it on DVD if you'd like to borrow (laughs) that. It's magnificent. Though Rod Steiger doesn't really look so much like Napoleon, I think he still gave gave Napoleon the credit that was due him. And there's, of course, Napoleon and Josephine, a love story, which was made for television back in 1987. Armand Asante kills it. He's awesome. And Jacqueline Bissett as uh, Josephine, she she does a a super job. There's a few out there. And then you know, there's a there's a few bad ones too. <laughs> yeah. So one star. Okay. So I think you know, hearing you say one star, I I think I I'm I was gonna do two, but I'm thinking I'm one and a half now. Yeah. How about you, Scott? How do you feel? I so, so you know, four <laughs> four star doesn't compute to me. I'm used to a five star scale, but if we're gonna go with four stars, I'll say two, just because I I kind of just you know for the general the average movie mm-hmm. movie goer the cinematography, and e- even though. To me, again, not kind of knowing the history or the facts or kind of what was right or what was wrong. Like there was stuff that was just, it just felt like it was missing that tying the story together. But I, I did enjoy just kind of the representation of of the of the era, yeah. Right of showing Napoleon the costumes and the kind of the, the mm-hmm. battles and, and a lot of that stuff was just the, again the the pure Hollywood movie kind of bigness of it. You know, for yeah. for lack of a, of a, a more sophisticated way to to describe a movie, I know. I, I just I, I did enjoy that aspect. Just of it. missed the mark. And honestly, and Mark, you'll probably he doesn't even talk with a French accent. It's like, hey, what's up? I'm Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of an LA accent, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we uh, honestly- well, you know what. 
you know, maybe we can revisit this scaling system because supposedly Apple TV is going to put out a four-hour version of this. Oh, okay. Have you heard about that? Yes, the no. director's cut. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, are they? The director's cut, mm-hmm. which maybe will be more inclusive to help the narrative along. And, yeah. you know, maybe we will see him talking about his reforms, the, the Code Civil or the Code Napoleon, the creation of the Banque de France, Institutes mm-hmm. for Higher Learning. Yeah, I've been eye out for that. All, all those things would be interesting. And maybe the Italian campaign. That would yeah. be nice. Maybe some of those love letters, because that's when he wrote all of those love letters. Maybe the Marengo campaign of 1800, after he gets back from Egypt and the Austrians had taken back all that he had conquered in 
Uh, absolutely. So at Colonial Williamsburg, if you'd like to see the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, we have our schedule online so you can find out when I'm doing what we call public audiences or when I'm in town. I'm usually in town five days a week. But this weekend coming up, if you are in the Czech Republic in the southeastern corner by Brno, I will be Napoleon at the Battle of Austerlitz, his greatest victory. Uh, so come out, turn out for that. You can follow me on Instagram. Napoleon in America, and I put up all pictures and videos of the different things that I do in character. So awesome. look for me there. Yeah, well, thank you so much again for joining us, Mark. And for those listening, remember to reach out to us at our website, talkwithhistory.com. But more importantly, if you know someone else that might enjoy this podcast, please share it with them, especially if you think today's Napoleon topic would interest a friend. Even if they haven't seen the movie, or if they ha- especially if they have seen the movie, yeah. you got to send this episode to them. Shoot them a text, tell them to look us up. We rely on you, our community, to grow, and we appreciate you all every day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.